0: Please uh, pray with me. Lord, if we'd left um, with nothing more than Christ is all and in all, Lord, we will have been given more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so we pray that uh, as your word is preached this morning, um, you would show us the supremacy of Jesus, the present value of the gospel, the relevancy, Jesus, of your reign to our daily life? Lord, would we leave here with our hearts lifted? Would we leave here with hearts more deeply convicted? Would we leave here as those who have um who, who know that we have received what you have promised, that you will give us everything we need for life and godliness. And that we would leave here knowing that you have given us, indeed, the greatest gift in the person of Jesus. Lord, work that into our hearts more deeply, um, that we would love you, we would love our neighbors. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, a couple of months ago, I got onto a podcast uh, called Terrible, Thanks for Asking. And I listened to an episode featuring uh, a woman named Dr. Susan David, she's a Harvard Medical School psychologist, and her specialty is emotional health. And the focus of this particular uh, conversation was on toxic positivity, which Dr. David described in this way, toxic positivity in its most salient form is an avoidance coping strategy. It is avoidance. When you are telling other people to just be positive, you are basically saying to them, My comfort is more important than your reality. We are saying to them, There is no space for your humanness here. Now, you know, it's possible, and it may be even likely, that you've experienced that in your relationships. Um, But I'd venture to say it's nearly inevitable that you've experienced it in your religion. In fact, if we're real honest, where we are sitting right now in a church service, many would say is the place, more than any other place on the planet, where there's no space for your humanness. And and that's not only the perception of some, it's actually the experience of many. And and, and I'm sure, you know, That's the experience of more than a few of you here. And to that, I just want to say, I'm so glad you're here, uh, given all you've been through. But for many, the church has been the place, right, to appear like you've got it all together when you're a wreck inside, the place to make sure that what you say is perceived as the right thing, instead of having the freedom to say the honest thing. The place where there's pressure to perform, where disappointment and shame and condemnation, when, when that comes and it actually becomes apparent that you failed and fallen short and blown it, you know, uh, it, it, it becomes the place that you can't be that. You can't be a sinful human being in the church. Well, we're continuing in Colossians this morning to further explore the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that doesn't deny the brokenness of our humanity, that doesn't demand toxic positivity, but actually deals with it in a life-giving way. And it might be good to start off by saying that it's actually impossible to understand the good news of Jesus Christ without first understanding the bad news of our story. Can't understand the good news without the bad news. And, and, And I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's no shortage of bad news in this letter. I mean, we find out that apart from Jesus, We're residents of a domain of darkness from which we need to be delivered. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We are needful of forgiveness, of reconciliation. We we were crushed under an unpayable debt. We had no hope of repaying on our own. So, you know, whether you're here as a Christian or, or one considering the claims of the gospel, I hope we can spend some time considering the important place of of our brokenness in the human story so that together we can understand and explore new possibilities in the gospel. I think that's really critical. The place of our brokenness enables us to see new possibilities in the gospel. And and, and I want to focus on three things in this text um, along those lines. First, what does it look like to have your life located in Jesus Christ? Secondly, what does it look like to have your life liberated by Jesus Christ? And finally, what does it look like to have a life that is larger because of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul starts off by saying that if your faith is in Jesus, you've been raised to new life in Christ out of the old life. But the curious thing about that, and and we've talked about this along the way, is that even as everything changes, nothing changes, right? Uh, we, we've seen how everything changes. Uh, in chapter 2, we looked at this just recently. You were raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your sins and trespasses and God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with all its legal demands. Everything's changed. But we also know there's a whole lot that doesn't change. Uh, when one becomes a Christian, they don't often move away or completely reset their social life or change their jobs. And you can be sure that the old temptations, the old struggles, the frustrations, the brokenness don't suddenly evaporate. Everything changes, but there's a whole lot that doesn't change, right? But even as the way life is situated may go pretty much unchanged because there is new life in you, you're now able to pursue a new way of life, which Paul calls in verse 1 here, seeking the things that are above. Now, I don't don't know how that phrase strikes you, uh, but for me it smacks of otherworldliness, right? Like, okay, now that I'm a Christian, does that necessitate canceling Netflix and cutting out to the monastery, Right? Seeking the things that are above. But surprisingly, even though it might hit us as otherworldly, I think as we get into this, you're going to see this this is the most thisworldly thing you can imagine. Paul actually explains what it means to seek the things above when he says, that's where Jesus is. Which means that seeking the things above doesn't mean pursuing a higher spirituality. It means pursuing him. Those saved by Christ are called to seek Christ, and critical to understanding whom it is we seek is to understand where it it, where he is. Uh, There's a lot about that here. We're told to seek Jesus, Paul says, who is seated at the right hand of God. So let's just break this down a minute. Jesus is described as seated. Uh, That is an indication that his work is finished. He's not running around busily doing things. He's seated. Not only is there nothing more for him to do, but because his saving work is for us, that means there's nothing more for us to do in our salvation. And again, that might sound kind of obvious. Jesus is the Savior. I'm not. I get that. But, but just to kind of get into, you know, a layer beneath what we say with our mouths and to try to maybe diagnose the heart on this a little bit, the functional belief. I'm going to put a diagnostic question to you to think through if this truth that Jesus is Savior, that his work is finished, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that there's nothing more for me to do in my salvation. Let me just put a diagnostic question to you to see if this is actually operative in our lives. And that question is, is God ever angry with you? Is God ever angry with you? And given, the Bible has a lot to say about God allowing trials and challenges and difficulties in our lives. But, But the question is, is as we endure that stuff, does the thought creep in that it may be that God is upset, that he's lashing out, that he's letting you have it, that he's finally gotten kind of tired of your repetitive pattern of sin, and he's just going to let you just take the hit? Is God angry with you? And, And here's the thing. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, because his work is finished, because that work is for you and me, the answer to that question must be a definitive no. Never again. His seatedness points to salvation's completedness. He has, we've, we've read this recently, he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He has set it aside, nailed it to the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has put them to open shame. He has triumphed over them. And because that's true, it can never be true that there's a little bit more debt God is going to shake out of you and me. Or maybe a little bit more burden that he wants to lay upon you just to kind of make you appreciate all he's done for you. Or some secret single barrel stash of wrath, you know, towards sin, reserved for you and me, which he has withheld from Jesus on the cross. May it never be. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. The work is finished. And again, this is the most this-worldly Spirituality, you can imagine. It's all deeply relevant to what it looks like to live in the here and now. Imagine what remembering and relying on and relishing the truth of what that would do for a guilty conscience, for your fears, for your relationships, for enduring the trials and the tribulations and the brokenness and all the things that seem to threaten our life and well-being, if we knew that his work is finished and that there is never a time in which God is not loving me because of Jesus. What might that do? That might be some homework this week. I hope it is for all of us. And as if that weren't enough, we're let in on another glorious truth that not only is Jesus seated at the right hand of God, you are right there with him if you are a believer in Jesus. So stepping back for a second, I just want to see this connection between verses one and two that kind of comes into view so that verses one, verse one's seeking the things that are above, suddenly becomes verse two's setting the mind on things that are above. This is how the truth is applied in the life of the believer, a mindset. There's a connection between seeking and setting the mind. As, as Greg will attest, I'm not really a car guy. Um, I don't think it gets much better than my Kia Sedona minivan, uh, whom I affectionately refer to as Vanna White because it's white. Um, but, but every decade or so, I break down and uh, get a car once whatever's been getting me around breaks down or catches fire, and that's when I start seeking what kind of car I think we need, and, and, and you know what happens when I do that? All of a sudden, I begin to see these cars everywhere. It's not like they weren't there before, right? But in my seeking, there became formed in my mind a, a mindset so that I'm, I'm more alive to and aware of the world of minivans than I was before, right? Right? And I think there's something of that dynamic in what the church is being called to here in seeking Jesus, seeking the things above by setting your mind on the things above. By by seeking Jesus as the author and finisher of our salvation, which is to say that our seeking necessitates a gospel mindset. Seeing seeing the the world through gospel glasses, looking at life in light of the greatness of, Of our Savior, not losing sight of the resurrection life when we're getting killed. Remembering the fullness of our forgiveness when our conscience is being crushed. Relying on our riches in Christ when we're feeling depleted. Having fellowship with him when we're feeling alone. Remembering that Jesus came for sinners when we again and again and again stumble into sin. This is what I call the present value of the gospel. What does it mean to you right now that Jesus rose from the dead? I think it means that whatever, at the very least, whatever may feel like it's threatening your life and your heart, you have to say, it can't threaten me. The greatest threat has been defeated. On the cross, the work is finished. Now, Paul contrasts that mindset with with setting the mind on things that are on earth. Um, again, we need to be clear here. This is not otherworldliness. This is not despising or disregarding or devaluing life here and now. Uh, A huge chunk of of the first chapter of this letter is, is virtually a hymn of celebration to the goodness of creation as being that which was not only created by Jesus, but through him and for him. And so that means you can sit down at dinner in front of a sizzling ribeye. And that becomes not just a moment of, you know, getting calories into your body. It becomes a moment of worship. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. That you didn't ordain that we eat protein pellets. But you give us these good gifts. I mean, over and over, you can go through life like that, right? The creation is good. So the warning here against seeking things on earth is an admonition, I think essentially to to not go through life knowing only the half of it. Don't, don't just think about the things on earth as if that's all there is, as if we're just these materialistic beings so that there's nothing other than that. Instead of realizing the fullness of life and knowing that your life is hidden with, with, with Christ in God. Now, that's curious language. What, is exactly, what exactly does that mean, to have the life hidden with Christ in God. A helpful explanation is in Jesus' parable of the mustard seed and the yeast in Luke 13, where he explains that when you make a batch of bread, when you make the dough, as you're, as you're putting it together, the yeast becomes hidden in the flour. Same, same language. It's kneaded into the dough, it's worked into it so that the yeast becomes part of and inseparable from all the other ingredients. Like if your neighbor comes over and says, you know, can I have some yeast? You can't go grab a loaf of bread and go, let me extract the yeast from it, and here you go. Once you make the bread, there's no going back. You'll never, ever separate flour from yeast, even if you wanted to. That's what it means to have your life hidden with Christ and God. It means that your life can never be separated, never extricated from the life of Jesus any more than you can reverse engineer a loaf of bread and get the yeast out of it. That's that's the life that is located in Jesus. And it's critical to living our life here and now. And it's also critical to being able to live a life liberated by Jesus, a life of freedom. Paul goes on to connect the grace given for new life in Christ with grace given for growth in the Christian life. And he describes that growth as something like taking off old clothes and putting on new ones. And the idea here isn't just changing clothes. the idea here is something like dressing for the occasion, um, just as none of us would ever go down to Canyon Road for our 25th anniversary dinner wearing a wetsuit, or go dirt biking in a speedo, or, you know, head down to the gym to get our reps in in a three-piece suit. You know, if your life is hidden in Christ, if it is inextricably connected to him, you can't go out in life clothed in anything other than him, right? That ought to be evident on the outside of who we are, not just on the inside of who we are. And so this putting off the old clothes of life, what he calls here the old self with its practices, gets gets very specific, and, and, and I want to say, before we look at this, it's really critical to see that having described what God has done in giving someone new life in Christ, we're now describing what, having been given new life in Christ, having been inextricably connected to Jesus, what it looks like to grow in him. The Lord who saves, sanctifies, and with that comes a calling to not be passive, but to be active in our sanctification. I was buying plants once uh, at this nursery and I don't know much about gardening and plants and I I said something about, you know, I don't really have a green thumb. And she said, let me let you in on a secret. It's not about having a green thumb. It's about having brown knees. It's about getting down in the dirt and doing the work. And, And, you know, and I thought about that more since. And I think there's an important relationship here that, you know, none of us ever caused it to rain or created water or soil or sun, but if we have any hope of seeing growth and fruitfulness, we tend to those things that are given. And if you have any apprehension of the greatness of grace, you do the same thing, and you actually want to. You want to cultivate those things. You're not passive, but you're a participant in what the Lord has done and what he will yet do. But here's the thing, okay? One of the big challenges in all of this is sin has muscle memory, powerful muscle memory. I think that's why Paul is so focused focused in such a large portion of this letter on what it looks like to live this out because the old ways are there. It's like before Jesus came into our lives, we were like marionettes, like string puppets, right? Manipulated, moved around by sin, and then grace comes and cuts the strings that used to control us. We're free, except... The old ways of moving our joints feel right. They they sometimes feel like the only way to move, right? So Paul zeroes in on a couple of areas of the old way of life that can be particularly gripping, particularly tempting to lapse back into. The first one has to do with sexuality, and the second one has to do with speech. Sins of sexuality, sins of speech. Now, to be clear, first off, sexuality and speech are good gifts of God. And like all good gifts, we have an immense capacity to use them for either blessing and thriving or misuse and harm. So he begins with this call to put off sexual immorality, which is, refers to any sexual relations outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That is God's good intent for our sexuality. That's how it's supposed to operate. Sexual immorality is anything that falls outside of that. And he continues with impurity, how the character gets warped by the practice of sexual immorality and lust, the the idea of being overtaken by uncontrolled sexual urges. And he summarizes all of it with what's described as evil desires. And evil being added because desire is not a bad thing. Sexual desire carried out in God's will is a very good thing. And then a little later on, the focus shifts to sins of speech in verse 8, beginning with a call to put away anger. That is, the nurturing of hatreds, perceived wrongs, grudges, keeping those alive, rage, putting anger into action, malice, plotting to do harm, slander, putting malice into action by killing someone's reputation with your words, filthy language, using using our speech to profane instead of bless, right? Concluding with, you know, kind of the capstone to it all, one of the greatest dangers, and just lying to each other, setting aside the truth. And, you know, as I looked at this kind of from 30,000 feet this week, and I'm going to get a little more specific in a minute, I got to thinking about the the Werner Herzog documentary, Grizzly Man. Anybody ever see Grizzly Man? It was about this guy named Timothy Treadwell who'd, who'd go up every year... To the Katmai National For, uh, Park in southern Alaska and spend time with the grizzly bears. And, and he actually, you know, founded this organization to protect the grizzly bears. I think it was called Friends of the Grizzlies or something like that. And he became convinced that he would befriended the grizzly bears. That, that, that he began to understand them as no one else does did. That, that that he, that he was somehow had this special relationship in which he was their protector. And that there was even maybe a, a kind of mutual understanding that had developed between them. And a mutual affection for one another. And he lived among them. There was even one scene where he patted, he pet one of them. And, and I got to admit, there's a point where, you know, you even sort of begin to believe him. He'd go up to these magnificent animals, he'd pet them, he'd feed them, he'd, he'd sort of sit nearby them, until the day came when one of them attacked, killed, and partially consumed him and his girlfriend. You see, Treadwell began to imagine that these animals could be domesticated, befriended, controlled, all the time forgetting what a grizzly bear is. There's there's something of that here in this call to put off sin, to not trifle with it, because perhaps the greatest danger of sin is the notion that it can be controlled, it can be domesticated, it can be harmlessly integrated into my life, it can have a little space. It is at once attractive and appealing even as it is dangerous, damaging, and deadly. And it will not be domesticated any more than a Katmai Peninsula grizzly bear will be. And it doesn't love us, and it's not our friend. And we don't have a good mutual understanding. The most disciplined person in the world cannot discipline their way out of sin. The most dutiful person in the world can't duty their way out of sin. You will not manage it or direct it or control it or minimize it. All of which figures into why there's nothing here about controlling it. There's nothing here about the spiritual disciplines. I mean, and those have their place. The call here is to kill it. That speaks to the horrifying danger and damage that sin does to us. And it may be why Paul zeroes in on these particular sins because they are particularly alluring. They feel pretty good. They feel essential to my life. Then as now, what's warned of here as deadly was considered culturally normal, acceptable, and even essential to our thriving and well-being. Then as now, we swim in a culture that treats being prevented in any way from expressing ourselves, from venting our anger, from Holding on to our what we define as righteous anger from declaring our truth in person and online or exercising our right to free speech with little consideration as to what that speech may contain as a violation of our personhood. Even as there is growing cultural consensus that to be denied our sexual desires is is a deep personal violation and tragedy of the first order. That was true then, that is, that's the stuff we swim in now, and I think it helps to us to understand how it is that I think there's one sin listed here that sort of, to me, sticks out like a sore thumb. It's the sin of covetousness, of greed. It's the one sin that Paul says, let me, let me, let me tell you what it actually is, it's idolatry. And it sits right at the center of these sins. Well, what is greed? covetousness in essence it is to seek satisfaction for myself without any consideration of what it costs others and it belongs here because it's alive in all of this whether it's a sin of a sexual nature of a speech nature or some other variety it is present and it is idolatrous because it puts me myself and I the unholy Trinity at the center It it considers my perceived needs as ultimate, my notions of identity as critical to my life and thriving, regardless of what it may cost anyone else, without even thinking about what it may cost anyone else. And to that, Paul says, let's call this what it actually is, it's idolatry. It is the worship of that which is not God as God. And there's nothing more harmful to to a human being bearing the image of God, made for relationship with him and for fullness of life in him than that. So please, the plea is here, don't be robbed. Don't don't let the gospel be robbed from you by indulging in the empty promise that there might be life apart from Jesus, that you can domesticate the sin and befriend it. Now, it's important, it's very important to point out that the people reading this did not read this as the stuff of other people's problems. They didn't look at this through the lens of the culture war and go, man, isn't it a shame that there's those people out there? They, they, they understood it as their former way of life. They had some solidarity with this. They understood this well, and Paul says as much. He says, y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all used to walk in these ways. And I have no doubt that there were maybe more than a few of them who said, actually, Paul, let me tell you, I saw this as my whole life and my identity. I didn't didn't think about it as that uh, this is just what I did. I would have said this is who I was at that time in my story. And yet, because of the grace of Jesus, it is not the totality of their story. The gospel reminds us that this is who we were, but it also assures us that because of Jesus, it's not who we are anymore. Hallelujah. Verse 8 describes this as the former way of life, the way they used to walk, but now they've been given grace and a new ability to put it away, to put it off, to kill it. And sure, the muscle memory of the old life will seize you and the old passions will surge upon you. Temptations will come. You'll be attracted. You'll stumble. But your life is hidden in Christ. And he is in you. And he is not passive. I love how it's put here. The new self, Paul says, is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. It is happening. The old marionette movements are being changed. Jesus is alive and at work, putting you back into shape so that you look more and more like him, painful as the growth may be. And that's good news because I don't know about you, but all this stuff about killing sin to me doesn't seem just daunting. It seems dang near impossible. And in fact, you're off to a good start when you understand that in your own strength it actually is. And this makes growth in Christ and progress in the Christian life look utterly different than, you know, what we may perceive or certainly what, you know, lines the shelves of your local Christian bookstore. So that what is being advocated here is not a journey of personal development. It's a journey of Christ dependence more and more. Running to the one who is active and able to renew you by putting off the old self with its practices. Putting on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And, and right at the end of this passage, Paul, said, Paul puts out a proof that this is actually happening. Um, it shows up in an interesting place. Not necessarily, doesn't, you know, you will certainly see it in your personal life, but the, the example he uses is he says it shows up in our corporate life. It shows up in the life of the church. We get another list here, not of changed habits, but of changed humans from every tribe, tongue, and nation. People whose, whose lives are hidden in Christ, located in Christ, liberated from the power of sin, Participate, participants in the larger life they could never construct for themselves but that which is being constructed corporately in the church. Church isn't described as an event here. It's, it's something more like an embodiment of what Jesus does in in reconciling people to to himself. Showing us how salvation by grace through faith puts off the old humanity and joins us to a new humanity in which there's there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. This is another list, and it's one that throws in categories of race, religion, class, caste. It's all jumbled up. Which makes the point. <laughs> At the time Paul wrote this, it's important to understand you know, the mindset. There was no Disney sentimental, it's a small world after all, ethic. That was not a value. That, that sentimentality, that, 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 you know, loving the melting pot, or diversity, or e pluribus unum, nobody would have thought of that as a good thing. They would have read this as a catalog of the deep generational entrenched divisions that exist in society, and as that which was essential to upholding social order. That all those divisions kind of stay in place and exist in mutual tension so that everything doesn't collapse. So to have the temerity to list the Greeks, you know, this privileged class right alongside the Jews, on its own, if there was nothing else that would be utterly scandalous. To bring in circumcision, you know, for the Jews, a mark of superiority, as much as it was an indication of scorn for all those who weren't circumcised, who they would just pass off as the uncircumcision, risked inflaming the tensions. And if that weren't enough, you've got the barbarians, which is basically a slur that the the Greeks used for anyone who didn't speak their language. And then you've got the Scythians who were considered even lower than the barbarians, like kind of subhuman. And cutting across all of it is slave and free, the broadest range of economic statuses one could imagine. And all of this is thrown together in a witch's brew of arrogance, suspicion, pride, prejudice, blood feuds going back hundreds of years, oppression, injustice. And yet, Paul puts them out in front of us and says, These are Jesus' people, brothers and sisters, one family brought together. Showing us that these divisions are neither natural nor normal because they deny that all of humanity shares a common brokenness and a common dignity, that everyone's made in the image of God. And everyone is, and all of these people are being restored to their God, demonstrating as Exhibit A that the old world has been put off and the new world is being put on after the image of its creator because in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the larger life of Jesus, who is under all and over all and in all and in the hearts of all his people. It reminded me of a story I read in a a book by an Australian uh, missionary named Dick McClellan called Warriors of Ethiopia. Um, And he tells a story about 42 evangelists from the Wolita tribe who wanted to take the gospel to other tribes in their region of Ethiopia in an area called Gopha. So these guys moved to Gopha and they rented land and they built houses and they planted crops and they got to know their neighbors and they shared the good news of Jesus. And people came to faith in Christ and churches were built so that not only were were people changed, but the actual place was changed. And, And, you know, in ways that, kind of hit society in ways that not everyone perceived as great. People stopped going to the shamans. The taxes that usually got paid to the orthodox priest diminished. Bribes to government officials stopped being paid. And once it started to hit those people's pocketbooks, one of these evangelists named Atero was arrested. He was put in chains. He was paraded through the market for pushing his new religion. And he was put in front of everyone put up on a stand, and a policeman came up to him and yelled at him, go back to Walita and take your Jesus with you. We don't want Jesus here. And a tarot was reported to have said to the policeman, oh, sir, please listen. Please listen. I can go, but the gospel will stay. By the power of God, I planted Jesus in Gopha, and he is planted in the hearts and souls of the Gopha people. I can go, but Jesus will stay. And I wonder, you know, do we know that this morning? Do we know that wherever we go or whatever we are going through, Jesus will stay? That, that, that as we struggle or stumble with the sin that used to define us, Jesus will stay? That, that he will stay, you know, in your troubled heart? That he will stay in this church? That he will stay in Santa Fe? <laughs> that he'll stay at this table week in and week out to feed his people. You know, this week we've been all over the place, maybe not only geographically, but in heart and mind and body. But we come back to this table to be reminded that Jesus stays with us, reminded where our life is located, reminded what we've been liberated from and for and how life has now been made larger in Jesus. And there's space for your humanness here, for your brokenness, for your frailty, for your weakness, because our Lord took the full weight of our humanity, and he doesn't despise the weakness, but gives grace to the needy, food for the hungry soul. So let's come together, eating from the same bread, drinking from the same cup in Jesus, because this same Christ has brought us from death into newness of life. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for I thank you that our life is hidden with you, that it cannot be extricated, that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus, Lord. And I I pray for grace this week. I, I called it homework earlier. I, you know, I would just say, Lord, give us the grace to live out a present, ongoing apprehension of the gospel. Lord, as 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 we as we find ourselves getting gripped by worry or anger or fear or irritation or any of those kind of emotional red dashboard lights, Lord, would that cause us to pause, cause us to look to our life in Jesus, our sufficiency in him, cause us to see the trial in utterly different ways because you have secured for us a great redemption and nothing can threaten us anymore because our life is hidden with you. Lord, as we come to this table, would we come looking to you who is at work? Be at work through this meal as we eat and drink. Lord, would we remember indeed that our life is in you, dependent on you, secured for you, and that this is just a foretaste of the great feast to come when we will sit at your very large table looking around witnessing the great reconciliation you've effected around that table, glorying in your presence, eating the richest affair, thanking you and praising you that you gave yourself to us that we may live. Be with us as we come here. In Jesus' name, amen.